Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Emergencies Act has been invoked. What exactly does it mean? Well, we'll talk about that. Too many conservatives regard their party as the place to indulge their deeply held, perfectly legitimate, but boutique causes. As the Tories get ready to vote for a new leader, what do they have to do? Interesting discussion that we're going to have on that. And there's a new Myru public opinion poll on how Canadians feel about relaxed community COVID restrictions. John Wright's the executive VP at Myru. He'll join us to talk about the results. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Prime Minister Trudeau, of course, invoked the Emergency Act yesterday in an effort to end the anti-government blockades that he says are illegal and not about peaceful protest. Roger Ward has details. Trudeau says the act will be used to protect critical infrastructure, such as borders and airports, and is creating time-limited powers that do not already exist. To supplement provincial and territorial capacity to address the blockades and occupations. Interim Conservative leader Candace Bergen will not say yet whether or not her party will support the action. We are concerned that the actions of the Prime Minister will not have that effect and in fact will have the opposite effect. This is the first time the Emergencies Act has been invoked. Roger Ward, the Canadian Press. Okay, so let's uh, bear down and try to find out exactly what's going on and uh, the implications of that. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Nomi Claire Lazar, who is a full professor in public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa. She's also the author of the book States of Emergency in Liberal Democracies. Very timely, obviously. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you on the program today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Well, I'm glad you could do this because there's so much misinformation going on. And I know some people are trying to conflate this act that they talked about yesterday with the War Measures Act. And maybe we could spend just a couple of seconds on a short history lesson here. This is son of War Measures Act, I guess. I mean, this was actually implemented back in 1988. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that is correct. Uh, although if we're going to call it son of War Measures Act, we're, we're going to uh, have to think of it as 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 a, a very rebellious son uh, because this <laughs> because this act was uh, replaced the war measures act uh, because of the widespread abuse that the war measures act uh, had had enabled so that act had come into force in 1914 during the first world war and then during the second world war it was under that legislation that uh, Canada interned uh, Japanese Canadians then during the October crisis, the, uh, when Trudeau Sr. invoked the War Measures Act, uh, the RCMP went on a, a little uh, rampage, uh, engaging in mass arrests, uh, confiscating political literature, etc. And so, so the War Measures Act did have a long history of, of abuse, and it was an incredibly wide sweeping uh, um, piece of legislation, uh, very, which made it very prone to abuse. So, so this act uh, it was meant to constrain some of the opportunities for abuse. And while emergency powers are always dangerous and they're always kind of scary and they should be, and we should not stop being scared even you know, where those emergency powers are necessary, this is actually a pretty good piece of legislation compared to what we see in other countries. There are a lot of safeguards built right in, uh, and I'd be happy to speak about those uh, uh, if you like. Yeah, let's talk about those. And, and just, again, to give this some historical co uh, context, uh, this this act was, was was passed by, well, conservative government. Brian Mulroney and his majority government passed this. And uh, 
Perrin Beatty, who's now the head of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, of course, was the defense minister at the time. And there was a pretty lively debate, wasn't there, Professor, at that time about the, the overreach of the War Measures Act. And basically, uh, they didn't modify it. They basically addressed a lot of those concerns. And, and I, I, having read the act, and I'm not sure how many people actually did that over the last 24 hours, there are some safeguards. And maybe we should start there and talk about exactly uh, the, the restrictions and, and, the, and the guardrails that are up there for this government or any government that tends to invoke this act. Sure. Um, and it just history lesson wise, it might be worth noting that uh, that emergency powers are as old as constitutional forms of government, just because constitutional forms of government tend to slow things down. So we want in normal times for people to deliberate and debate, etc. And we want checks and balances on on power. And so we need a mechanism that allows us to respond faster in a crisis. But um, there are ways to uh, respond fast in a crisis that still keep checks and balances, and that's what this legislation does. So first of the, the, first of all, uh, it does say you know explicitly in the act that it is meant to go together with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and to respect Canada's obligations under the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights. So both our charter and the ICCPR have provisions in them that allow us to limit rights in a crisis. Uh, so section one of our charter, article four of the ICCPR, um, but it's very explicit that this is not meant to override the charter, this legislation. So that's the first thing. Then um, parliament is, you know, both houses of parliament are gonna have to vote. And if they vote this down, the emergency's over. So this is not you know, pure executive power. There's a legislative check on the prime minister uh, here. Uh, then the, uh, every order made under this legislation has to be uh, tabled before Parliament, so it just encourages us to keep our eyes on it. And there will be a parliamentary review committee that's made up of people from all the different political parties that uh, will be uh, scrutinizing everything the government does. Uh, a couple of other really important features, um, and, and one is the sunset clause. So after 30 days, uh, the, the uh, Parliament has to vote again if the emergency is going to continue. And then a super important one, which I think was actually a Canadian innovation, is that after the emergency is over, the act requires that there be an inquiry. So this is triggered automatically. And that means that whatever politicians are doing right now, they know that they're going to be judged for it afterward. There's going to be nowhere to hide. And that might be small comfort to somebody who's worried about their rights now. But we know from other types of legislation like this, that it has a strong impact on political, uh, on politicians' behavior if they know that they're that they're going to face consequences automatically after the fact. So there are quite a few safeguards built in. Um, oh, one more that I almost forgot is that is that you're you, you can still go to court if your rights are derogated under this act. So there is still judicial review. So we have all the kinds of checks and balances we do in normal times. They just work a little bit differently. And I think that's a key point here that some people seem to have overlooked. And I know some of the commentators are suggesting that this is a dictatorship now. It's not. Uh, it's it's not a police state. Uh, it's not anywhere near that. Uh, this is an act of parliament, uh, you know, and, and it has to be passed by the parliament, which is a key point in this. And I guess uh, in a roundabout way, I guess one of those other safeguards uh, that's really just a, a, a consequence of the circumstance where and this is a minority government. So if the opposition parties vote this down, it dies right there. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you can't jam this through or ram this through. It still has to get the uh, the, the blessing from Parliament, correct? That is exactly right. 
And that's going, and that, if I recall from what I read last night, that has to happen within seven days. So the clock is ticking on that. So they've got to uh, address this in Parliament within the next couple of days to make sure that this is going to be on side. And of course, as always, in our system, the Senate will vote on this as well. That's right. So, so really, there are a lot of checks and balances. Uh, this, this is, again, I can't stress strongly enough that we should always feel nervous when there's a state of emergency, that, that emergency powers uh, are scary things. And it's incumbent on us, ultimately, as citizens, to keep our eyes on the government and make sure that we hold them accountable. But if you're going to, if you have to have emergency legislation, and every constitutional regime does, this is a good piece of legislation to have. Yeah, and there are, as you mentioned, similar types of legislation in other uh, democracies, United States, of course, and, and others like that, where they have to call in for assistance. I, I guess at this point, we're yeah. going to have to get into the weeds a little bit, Professor, and talk okay. about, uh, you, you've explained, I think, very thoroughly exactly what this looks like and, and why uh, it's, it does have those safeguards. But, you know, one of the other elements of this debate now is, was it necessary? And uh, the question, I guess, a lot of scholars are, and many of your colleagues are asking right now, does it meet the threshold of, of what was put out in the act for it to actually be implemented? Uh, and and I'm, I'm hearing almost a split opinion on this, uh, you know, almost a 50-50 split. Some say yes, some say no. Uh, what's your read on that? Uh, I'm going to be a very, very disappointing radio guest now and tell you that I'm reserving judgment on that one. I don't think that I have enough information uh, to, to really form an opinion just yet. Um, I'm hoping to, to hear more, particularly once... Uh, uh, once all of this is tabled in Parliament. Uh, I, I will say that from what the Prime Minister said yesterday, I'd be leaning a little bit toward, I'm not so sure. Uh, it, it, it certainly seemed to me a couple of days ago that Premier Ford, for example, had all the powers he needed to resolve the situation. I was a little puzzled about the uh, uh, you know, why we would need a national state of emergency. But uh, I, I do think that there's probably something going on with the financial uh, the financial regulations that are being brought in. And as we've heard the, uh, that about half of the funding uh, has been coming from south of the border, uh, that that makes me wonder whether there's uh, something going on that we may not have all the details about yet that does require sort of concerted national response. And those financial uh, uh, derogations that the prime minister announced, uh, those would not have been possible under the provincial legislation. So I know that sounds really like I'm hedging and I am. I do think that it's appropriate sometimes to, to, to say that I'm not, you know, that, that we're not ready to form an opinion on this. And, and so I'm just looking at the evidence, listening to the arguments and, and, uh, uh, sooner or later, I, I guess I'll come to a defeasible conclusion. <laughs> uh, and listen, I think I think we're all you know a little hesitant about this. I'm not going to jump up and down and wave the flag, and I'm not one of these to say, "Hey, you know, why didn't you do this earlier?" Uh, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's a very powerful piece of legislation, and it needs to be treated as such, and and you know, with the, the safeguards and with some trepidation. Uh, and and I know that some people are going to say that the government is overreaching, and and I guess there's an argument to be made that the quote unquote protesters. Uh, maybe abusing their privilege to to, to assembly and, and free speech as well uh, with some of the things that they've done. And there's an economic argument here to be made, sure. Uh, but, you know, I, and I don't mean to be literal here, but I mean, you don't have to have a gun to somebody's head to have to put them in danger. And I think there's an argument to be made here that uh, that what's going on in the city of Ottawa right now and what's happening at border crossings, uh, you know, is, is a threat to this economy and, of course, to our sovereignty. So, And I'm not going to start the debate right now. I guess that's going to happen in Parliament in the next couple of days. Uh, but there it goes. And I, I think I described it in my commentary earlier this morning. 
as, as an uncomfortable but necessary piece of legislation. And, and maybe that's the middle ground that we're looking for here. That sounds right to me. I would just probably describe it just, just the same way. There's no constitutional regime in the world that doesn't have emergency powers. Uh, they are necessary. Some, sometimes they are necessary and they're always uncomfortable. And, and so, uh, uh, you know, even if it turns out these do meet the threshold, we as citizens are really have to keep our eyes on the government, really have to hold them accountable uh, and make sure that it's just the strictly necessary powers uh, to get this situation back under control. And, and I agree, by the way, with what a number of the critics are saying. Uh, there is a failure, I think, of government at all levels to, to control this and, and for us to be in this situation. You know, a pox on their houses, all of their houses, for putting us in this circumstance. But, you know, when you look at it from the other side of the coin, okay, what do we do now? February 15th, 2022, look what the mess we're in. How do we get out of it? You know, we'll debate later on how we got into it. Uh, and there's a lot of blame to go around here. But how do we get out of it seems to be the question now. And in addition to that, it's not just getting out of the immediate situation. Uh, there's going to be aftermath, and that aftermath is is not just uh, you know what, whatever reaction there there is from the convoy organizers to uh, uh, to, to whatever is about to happen now, but also from citizens at large. So that giant multi-level failure to uh, manage the situation, I think, has done serious damage to people's faith in government and people's faith that the government in the government to, to uh, you know keep us safe and, and maintain order I mean I'm talking to you now from uh, from my my home which is in central Ottawa and uh, it's uh, you know my neighbors are just aghast <laughs> so, so so rebuilding trust in government is going to be uh, very important as well as dealing with whatever blowback uh, comes from the measures we're, we're about to take. And the other side of that, because I've got relatives in Ottawa, too, who are in very similar circumstance and very similar mindset, too. Uh, and I said, look, if you think, you know, that your mayor sucks or your police chief sucks or your prime minister, there's a democratic way to get rid of them. And we, you know, we do that. You don't do it by mob rule by simply saying we're going to overtake the city until these guys leave. Uh, they, you know, that that happens in, in banana republics. It's not supposed to happen in a democracy. And I think that's one of the more disturbing aspects of this whole scenario. That's correct. And I, I and. That's partly where the the uh, uh, where, where the this, these questions around faith in government uh, really come to the fore. That that if we just allow uh, the, this kind of thing to happen, so money coming from uh, from the United States that's that's funding people to basically say until we get our policy way, uh, we're going to you know hold this border point hostage or hold this city hostage. Um, as you say, like that's not democratic. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's not appropriate. And, uh, and if it's being funded uh, largely by people in the United States, then we, you know, we do need to be kind of concerned about, about uh, foreign influence in, in, in our political system, which is something, of course, that every country is uh, quite concerned about at this particular moment. So I suspect that's part of what's driving Trudeau's uh, interest in uh, the financial uh, rights derogations. I know we're almost out of time, but you touched on something a second ago, Professor, that I find interesting. Uh, maybe we don't know the whole picture. Maybe they know more than than they're letting on at this stage. Maybe it's going to come out in the debate. And, and you used the, the point about the premier here. I mean, Doug Ford seemed to have uh, things under control with the powers of the emergency act, uh, the measures that he put in place last week. And we saw it seemed to be effective in Windsor. Yet Doug Ford is supporting what the prime minister is doing. 
and it may well be the financial aspect of this. I, I, I'm getting mixed answers about whether or not the federal government had the power to uh, control these finances the way that uh, Minister Freeland talked about yesterday with existing legislation. Uh, so I guess, you know, it's, it's going to be a learning process for us to determine exactly why they did this and, and what they hope to achieve by this. So uh, this is this is not the end. This is the, the end of the beginning, I guess. There's a debate to go on. And I guess we're all finding out uh, a lot more as we go along, aren't we? That is that is quite right. And I, I, again, I do think it's appropriate sometimes to decide not to form an opinion yet and just to keep seeking uh, information uh, until we have a clearer picture of, of what's going on. Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you so much for the invitation and uh, wishing you and all of your listeners uh, a good day. And let's all stay safe. Thank you again. Uh, Professor Nomi Claire Lazar from the University of Ottawa. And by the way, the book, interesting read too, States of Emergency and Liberal Democracy is her latest book. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Before the Emergency Measures Act and uh, the debate about that and uh, problems going on in Ottawa and Windsor, we were talking about politics in Ottawa anyway, because the Conservatives, of course, are uh, in the process of trying to select a new leader for the party. And there's a lot of pressure on them to to get it right this time. And there was, a, a, I think, a very fascinating and very timely uh, op-ed piece in the, the National Post a couple of days ago uh, that I wanted to reference here. And uh, it's, it's really about the Conservatives and their ideology and their mindset uh, about how they choose a leader and how they present themselves to the Canadian public. Uh, the author of the piece is uh, Brian Lee Crowley. Brian is a founder and managing director of the McDonald Laurier Institute. His most recent book is Gardeners versus Designers, Understanding the Great Fault Line in Canadian Politics. And uh, Brian joins us on the program. Brian, thank you so much for the time. Pleasure to have you with us today. Oh, Bill, thank you so much for the invitation. I, I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's kind of nice to change the channel for a little bit. I mean, this is a very important <laughs> debate, of course, about what's going on with the, the legislation and the Emergencies Act. You know, as we said, this is a pretty important time for the Conservative Party right now. They've finally decided, uh, after a lot of hand-wringing, that Aaron O'Toole is not their guy. Uh, and they're going to have to do this right. And as you said, right in the first line of your piece, it's not about you, Conservatives. It's about Canada. Uh, are they going to get that message this time, Brian? Well, uh, I, one of the reasons I wrote the op-ed was because I wanted the message to be absolutely crystal clear. I, I, I don't have a crystal ball. Will they get the message? I don't know. But what I can tell you is that I had a huge amount of very positive feedback from a lot of Conservative members who said, finally, someone has articulated the problem that faces the Tories, which is that, you know, they, they, they just have, uh, they, they only think about themselves. You know, they think about their own uh, little boutique policy interests, you know, about climate change or abortion or whatever. They don't think about their fundamental constitutional and political responsibility to offer an alternative government to the one that's in office today. That is their job. And if they cannot offer an alternative to the government of the day that people will embrace, that they can at least have some trust in, uh, then they are failing Canadians in their most fundamental job. Uh, and this is not speaking in the hypothetical, isn't it? Because we've seen examples of that during the last couple of federal elections. Uh, you know, the, the level of discontent with the, the, the Trudeau governments uh, is, is palpable, but uh, they've looked at the Conservatives clearly in both of those elections and said, no, nah, don't think so. Uh, and they've, they've got to they've got to get something from that. They've got to take that message somehow, don't they? 
I, I hope they do, because you're absolutely right. I mean, I believe I'm right in saying that the, uh, the, the federal government today in the last election got the lowest percentage of votes of any government elected in Canadian history. Uh, you know, that's two elections in a row where the Conservatives have won the popular vote but failed to win uh, more seats than the Liberals. I mean, in every way possible. Uh, I think Canadians have been signaling that they want an alternative to this government, you know, uh, uh, and and the Tories, uh, they uh, the Canadian electorate looked at them during the campaign. Uh, in both cases, in the early days of the campaign, uh, the Conservatives were doing very well. But by the time we got to the end of the campaign, people were saying, yeah, you know, uh, look, I gave the Tories a serious look. Uh, I, I, in fact, I, I thought really seriously about voting for them. But the end of the date, not enough Canadians were were willing to do that. Uh, uh, certainly, in those vote-rich suburban ridings like uh, Hamilton and uh, uh, other places in the 905, and uh, that's on the Tories. That the we have a, a, a Liberal government under Justin Trudeau, not because the Liberals are strong, but because the Conservatives are weak. And. and- you know, this is it's in, on a surface. They may seem like a partisan discussion here, but it's not. Uh, to have a healthy country and a healthy democracy, uh, I, I, I think we all want to see healthy parties and, and legitimate choices and, and a variety of choices. And and that seems to have been lost on on some of the people in Ottawa these days, uh, where they simply say, "Well, this is what I am," uh, and and there doesn't seem to be any ideology. You know, there's an old U.S. phrase, I guess, that I think is still very applicable here. Uh, you know, how's it going to play in Peoria? In other words, you know, how are people outside the, this bubble that we're living in, in this particular case in Ottawa, how are they going to perceive this? Uh, and if you're going to enact a policy at a convention, for instance, on climate change, uh, where they didn't really want to make a commitment to that, does anybody around the table, Brian, stand up and say, whoa, well, before we open the doors, how's this going to be perceived? I, I don't know that they asked that question. Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of despair in some parts of the uh, Conservative Party, as I understand it, because I, I talk to a lot of people. That, by the way, I talk to a lot of liberals who say to me, you know, we wish the Conservatives were a stronger opposition because it helps them to raise their game. You know, if they thought that the Conservatives uh, offered a serious threat to them, they would have to change their behavior, uh, I think. Uh, so um, you're, you're absolutely right that uh, the question now is, uh, will enough conservatives ask themselves the question, why is what we're offering not resonating with Canadians? And and will they go on from asking that question to ask the next question, which is, how do we change our behavior in order to make ourselves a trustworthy alternative that Canadians will give serious consideration to? Because that's, that's the only way that they're going to win elections. And, uh, you know, this is not, as you say, a, a partisan thing. Uh, this is about the health of Canadian democracy. Without two strong alternative governments available to Canadians, we can't hold the government of the day accountable because they'll just say, well, you know, we're not at any risk. We can make all the mistakes we want. We can bring in all the unpopular policies we want. As long as we're just slightly more popular than the alternative, we're okay. And I don't think that's good enough for Canadians. Well, if you, yeah, because if you have no opposition, you get sloppy. And, and you know, yep. whether you're talking about a hockey game or a, or a federal election, you're not, uh, you don't have your game face on if you know the other guys can't get the puck over center ice. And that seems to be the case in, in the last couple of elections. And, and it's, it's the Canadian public that suffers as a result of this. But the other overriding question, and Brian, if they read your piece, and you mentioned you've heard from a number of people in the party in the last few days, uh, how do you go about this? I mean, you know, are, are they comfortable in their own skin? I mean, I, I think it's pretty obvious this is not the Conservative Party of Brian Mulroney, 
of, of a number of years ago. Uh, you know, there's been an ideological change here. Uh, and I'm not so sure people within the party are comfortable with that. Yeah, well, you see, I think part of what has to happen is they have to seek to reach out beyond the people who are already partisan uh, and uh, understand that their responsibility is not to uh, treat politics as, um, you know, a winner-take-all game where, you know, you have a few ideas and you get out there and if you win, you get to impose your ideas on everybody else whether they want them or not. That's not what politics is about. Politics is about reconciling divergent interests and opinions within the country in order to put together a government that Canadians will uh, accept. And, you know, at, at the moment, uh, they only think about the people who are already in the party. They don't think enough about people outside the party who want an alternative to the current government. And so I think the the, the key here will be not necessarily whether you know, the existing Tory membership will think differently, but whether the leadership candidates will excite enough interest that they'll be able to bring in more people with a, 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 a greater diversity of views uh, that they can move the party uh, more in the direction of what Canadians are looking for as an alternative government. Where's the power within the party right now? Because the, the speculation, and you've heard this the last two or three uh, leadership conventions, I guess, really, Brian, uh, <clears throat> is that there's a, a hardcore right wing, maybe some would consider extreme right wing, that have very, very you know strident views when it comes to certain social issues, for instance. And it seems as if the, the leaders or potential leaders in this case play to that crowd thinking that's their base. And it may well be their base, but it certainly uh, doesn't reflect the, the attitudes of a lot of Canadians right now. There's a disconnect there, isn't there? Yeah, I think there is. Uh, and, you know, part of what uh, I'm saying in this, uh, this op-ed is that, you know, the, the leadership candidates need to talk to the existing party base, in addition to trying to expand the membership. But they also need to talk to the existing party base and say to them, look, guys, we have responsibilities here, you know, under the Constitution. We have to uh, be in a position to help Canadians hold their government to account, uh, have an alternative government, all that stuff. The piece kind of talks about an identity crisis. And I was, as I was reading this, I was thinking, this is applicable to the Conservatives right now, certainly. But just about every party goes through this at one time or another, don't they? I mean, the, the, the Liberals had to find their way after the 2006 election when Stephen Harper defeated them, uh, find out, not, not just pick a leader, but find out just who they were and what they stood for. And uh, you don't always get it right the first time, do you? No, I think that's right. And I think that uh, the, the Conservatives have not yet uh, realized that they have to go through a bit of a fundamental rethink. And my, my piece was an invitation to them to do that. Um, and I, I, I think that this is going to be part of the renewal of the party that is necessary in order for them to, um, to be really competitive with the, uh, with the Liberals. Uh, the Liberals, uh, you know, had big policy conventions and they, 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 they actually thought quite seriously about uh, who they were and what they wanted to do. Uh, I don't think the, the Conservatives have done that yet. You referred earlier to, uh, you know, this is not the party of Brian Mulroney. You might remember that the, you know, the party of Brian Mulroney uh, broke up uh, into three constituent parts. You know, one became the yeah. Reform Party, one eventually became the Bloc Québécois, and, and one was the old traditional, uh, mostly Ontario-based uh, progressive Conservatives. Uh, the, the, the new Conservative Party has not succeeded in, in rebuilding that uh, coalition. Now, they don't have to rebuild that one, but uh, they clearly have to 
build a coalition that is competitive with the liberals and uh, the, the, the people they have already in the tent are not enough. There's a realization, I guess, in some circles uh, that, look, yeah, we have to move a little more to the middle. I know that's uncomfortable for an awful lot of people to even talk about that, but, uh, you know, because left is left and right is right. But, you know, we, we understand from by and large, I really, I guess, since Confederation, uh, we as Canadians kind of like being governed from the middle, middle right, middle left. And even, I guess, you know, the last guy that won an election for these guys, Stephen Harper, seemed to understand that. He most certainly was a conservative uh, from from his ideologies and, and the policies he enacted. Uh, but he didn't go to the extremes. He, he seemed to understand that there's a, some middle ground here that I at least have to, to, to pay homage to, if not necessarily embrace, uh, which probably won him a number of elections right now. Can, can they get back into that mindset? Well, uh, I, I think Stephen Harper was, uh, was extremely good at uh, balancing the interests of the various uh, constituent uh, pieces of the Conservative Party. I don't think uh, the leaders that succeeded him have been nearly as good at that. And the, the result has been, you know, uh, during leadership campaigns, you get, uh, you get uh, candidates that pander to the base because they're afraid of the base. Uh, and then, you know, when they won the leadership, they then sort of turn around and say, oh, you know, I was only kidding. I didn't really mean what I said to the base. And the, the thing is that that makes people anxious. It means that they wonder, well, can I trust what you say to me? You know, you said one thing uh, to the base, you're saying another thing now that you're leader of the party. Uh, uh, so I, I think what what the party has to understand is that they have to build trust with Canadians. Uh, they haven't done that and they can't do it. Uh, by saying one thing to the base and 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 sort of cowering before the power uh, power of the base during the leadership campaign, and then um, turning their back on it and saying something quite different uh, during the elections because people don't people don't buy it. So uh, there has to be a way uh, instead of being afraid of the base. I think this is the key. Uh, the, instead of being afraid of the base, uh, the leadership candidates have to invite the base to live up to the party's responsibility to offer a credible alternative so that we can, you know, Canadians collectively can hold the government of the day to account and have an alternative if they want it. Um, uh, it, it it's, it's not about the base. It's about the country. And until you get uh, leadership candidates that will say that clearly to, um, uh, to their party, uh, I, I think we'll be stuck in the current uh, unhappy situation uh, electorally. And Brian, I, I didn't get the sense as I was reading your piece that, that you're suggesting they, they govern by popular polls and popular opinion. That, that's not my case at all. But you do need to be aware of public mood on certain issues. And, uh, you know, what, what might have been the public mood 20 years ago is not necessarily the public mood on some of those issues today. And and that there has to be, an, I, I would think, an acknowledgement of that. Yes, I, 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 you're absolutely right that I'm not suggesting that they uh, govern by opinion polls. I think it's uh, on the contrary. If you want to be trustworthy, you have to say, look, these are the things I believe in. Uh, and, but you have to have a broad range of things that you believe in that resonate with enough Canadians uh, that, you can, um, uh, that you can win elections. And that's, that's where, the, uh, that's where the, the Tories and their you know, current configuration uh, are, are not succeeding in doing. 
It's a great piece, and I, hopefully it's going to be food for thought. We know that sometime in the next uh, few months, the conservatives are going to pick a new leader. Uh, Pierre Polyev, of course, is the only one that's actually uh, uh, officially uh, tossed his hat in the ring, although the nominations aren't even open yet, but I'm sure there's going to be others. And uh, I'm hoping you read this and at least give this some, uh, some consideration about how they want to go and how the party's going to go. Brian, thank you so much, first of all, for writing the piece, and thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Me too, Bill. Let's do it again. You betcha. Take care. Brian Lee Crowley, founder and managing director of the McDonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We certainly know COVID fatigue is is with us uh, and having an influence on so many different parts of our lives these days. Uh, but at the same time, our medical experts are now tell us, you know what, let's have that discussion about coming out of this and learning to quote unquote live with COVID. So how are we feeling about that idea? Are we nervous? Are we uh, excited about this? Well, our, our good friends at My Republic Opinion have uh, decided that they want to find out just what the Canadian mood is on this, and they've done some extensive polling. Uh, our good friend John Wright, of course, Executive Vice President of Maru, joins us to talk about this. Uh, John, always a pleasure. Thanks for jumping on with us today. Well, it's always good to be with you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, it's it's time to move on. I think seems to be the attitude. What what did you find out? as you ask Canadians about uh, you know how they feel about this and and learning to live with COVID? Well, I think the phrase that I'd add to I'd put in this is uh, moving on necessarily, but not necessarily. Yeah, I think what we found were two thirds of the public across the country that say we should start moving forward and opening up, but at the first sign that our healthcare system is being uh, affected and impacted negatively, we can pull in our horns and go back to having certain targeted mandates. I mean, that's the, you know, what you're getting from the public is a prudent approach. It actually, uh, the poll was done last week. So it, you know, predates um, Dr. Kieran Moore, who, you know, is the chief medical officer and also uh, Peter Uni, who's the chair of the advisory table in Ontario, who yesterday said basically the same thing. You know, we can be supportive of, of, of a whole bunch of things, masks and things, you know, all these things. But what the polling is telling in this full piece of research is there are a lot of people who believe that we should be moving forward, living with the virus rather than running from it. And if you want to wear a mask, please wear a mask, Um, but allow other people to make some choices and to move forward. So I think we're kind of at that stage. Bill, you and I talked just in January about the impact of Omicron, that it was kind of pedestrian because it had gone through our communities. We'd seen it up close. Four in 10 Canadians knew somebody either in their household or otherwise who had got it, and probably more since then. As a result of seeing it up close in that, you know, we had it in our family. Nobody died from it in, in, in a lot of communities. People have said, you know what, we, if that's what it is, we should move forward. And if it affects our healthcare system badly, then we should change our way. So that's to sum up the whole thing, pretty much. Did that surprise you? That, 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 that was the mood that the, the majority of people seem to be of that mood? You know, that's a very subjective thing. You know, <laughs> I, no, no, no. But I, I want to say that what you what you get is after after looking at for 30 years of public opinion and looking at data tables, not the written, but the data tables every day, you do get a sense of the politic nature of the body of the country. So I can kind of feel it. Um, you know, I can feel, you know, in my stomach where we are. And I think where we are in this is kind of where I was in this. And that is, I'm not comfortable going to certain places that are wide open. I, I don't think I'd be very comfortable in the open air of uh, of Florida. I just, I just wouldn't be. 
but I would be more comfortable um, probably with friends going out to a restaurant. And I'll give you one quick example of that. I was in Halifax last week. I had to go down and see my son, who is, or our son, who is um, a student at Dalhousie. And it was much more open than it is in Toronto. And, and I was a little uncomfortable at first, but after the second day of being there, I kind of fit in and I could wear my mask here and there, but it was, it was much more relaxed than it was. And so I think once we become comfortable to it, you have choices and the choice is either wear your mask and do your social distancing or for the others, you know, you, you, you can be a little more open. I, I'm about the same, but we went to a movie this past weekend. I, I, I think my wife and I were just talking about that as we headed into the theater. I think it's the first time since COVID uh, that we've actually mm-hmm. done that because I just didn't feel comfortable in that environment. Uh, and, and of course, it's not as restrictive as it was before. There's only about, about 30 or 40 people in the theater, so there's lots of social distancing. But, you know, yeah, you take the mask off and, you know, you feel okay. I, I think what gives us a comfort level, though, John, is the fact that you know, 90% of the, of the people in this country are, are, are double vaccinated. And mm-hmm. we were told right from day one that that was going to be a contributing factor to us getting out of this. Now, you know, there there's a lot of, of debate about that and the, and the other 10%. But I think that's one of the questions you asked here. It's about time to just say, okay, fine. If you don't want to get the vaccine, that's your call. Uh, but, but we're in pretty good shape anyway. We I think we've let, we're not, hadn't let our guard down, but I think we're a lot more accepting of the fact that, okay, this is just like a lot of other stuff. I may need to get a vaccine for this every year to fight it off. I may get a mild case of it, uh, but you know we can learn to live with that. And I think, uh, I think what we're trying to do now is say, hey, wait, wait a second here. Other jurisdictions seem to be doing this. I, I talked a quick story. A friend of mine is a, a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, which of course has its own baggage. Uh, but he watched <laughs> the game. They were on the West Coast last night, last Saturday, and the the arena is full. And he's thinking. I, he's got season tickets to Scotia set, and he said, "You know, I can't go to those games, but everybody else in the in the country seems to be able to do that. What's going on here?" He says, "You know, what's good for one is good for the other," and I think that argument is starting to carry a lot more weight than it did even six months ago. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's look, you're going to have people who call into your shows or who email or text you and say, "Absolutely not." There's even other research that shows that people are in favor of mandates. They're in favor of mandates except that there's now a growing majority in this country who say I'm in favor of them, but I'm in favor of them only when we need to have them. Do you understand that that's the kind of context? The second thing is that there's another narrative that's playing below the surface here. And I think we should point it out. There's 9% of people in this country who say that they will be absolutely not vaccinated. And you and I've talked about, again, you and I've talked about this before uh, in all the research that we've shown since February of 2020, just as we were getting involved, it was between eight and 13% who said, absolutely, no, I'm not going to do it. So we're sitting at 9% right now. Those people have been ostracized. They have been vilified. They have been restricted. They have been basically kicked out of of so many different parts of our society that now what we're seeing through the truckers and through a series of other marches and things, we're actually seeing a a significant pushback. You can't have 3.4 million people in this country ostracized where they have to use a passport to become part of our citizenry. Uh, on you know, on an ongoing basis. They might have been at a certain point, but not now. And I think there's a growing recognition, you know, that this is the sort of thing that if you've been double and triple vaccinated, you should be allowed to, I mean, you, you might be able to do just fine with, with people who are outside of that realm, you know, mixing with them. And I think, again, you, there are some things that people will believe that we should keep forever, 
But there's a growing sense among a majority in this country that, no, we've got to start to move forward. We've got to figure out how many days a week we're going to be in at the office, how how much we're going to fill up to capacities in, in different venues, how we're going to be able to grapple with what we do at restaurants or, you know, in nursing homes and all that sort of stuff, because we have been double and triple vaxxed. vaxxed. And I think this is a turning point where we're starting to look forward, but we're willing to pull in our horns and apply those mandates again if the community health care system becomes beleaguered. And I think that's kind of where the mood is for the majority, not for every, but for the majority right now. And I know there were people that have always over that mindset. And, and uh, you know, I think that was the debatable point, though, back in those days, seven, eight months ago, John, was, was the medical experts were saying, no, we're not there yet. But, you know, when Dr. Moore and, and Dr. Uni and others are saying, yeah, I think we can, we can you know, light, raise the shades a little bit and let some sunshine in here. I, I think it eases everybody's, uh, you know, level of, of, of acceptance of that to say, yeah, okay, let's give it a shot. I mean, you know, we may want to just, you know, dip our toe in the water before we jump right in, but I think we're ready to do that right now. Yeah, and it comes at a really interesting time, doesn't it? Because we've had the protests who have been demanding we roll things back. And actually, since last week, we've seen rollbacks in everywhere from PEI all the way out to the West Coast. And you sort of say, well, one obviously is pressuring the other. And maybe it is. But to be fair to the chief medical officers, to which 45% of people in this province say that we should, you know, let let's just open it up and they should take a full step back. A majority say, no, I'm willing to listen. I want to go cautiously. And this is cautious, prudent Ontario speaking. So you've got all of these people who are starting to open their eyes and their, their, uh, their habits to new experiences in what we've been embedded in for the last two years. And we're going to have some caution. So I think what you're seeing here, again, go back to the body politic. It kind of a 45 to 55 percent in that range, which on any one of these questions are kind of in favor or against you. That seems about right. That's kind of the Goldilocks in me. You know, it's kind of the Mm -hmm. not too hot, not too cold. That seems to be where we're at right now with the warmer weather coming and with us experiencing some of these things. If we don't see the rise significantly in in the impact of the healthcare system or the ability to deal with that, then I think we'll have lesser restrictions things will open up a little bit more i want put your political hat on for a second you raised an interesting point and you're right uh the timing of this i find fascinating because the numbers seem to indicate as as uh, dr moore said the other day uh you know he's basing his his optimism on on the numbers he's looking at dr uni said the exact same thing those that have been protesting whether it's in ottawa or just you know downtown cores in toronto and other places they're going to jump up and down and say, see, it worked. Uh, we, we put the pressure on the mm-hmm. government and they acquiesced. Mm-hmm. And I know the government's going to say, and Doug Ford mentioned this again the other day, it's not because of that. This was our timetable. We've just moved the timetable up a couple of weeks because the numbers look good. Uh, is there going to be a political move here right now to say, maybe not yet because I don't want to give these guys a victory? And I know that sounds very crass, uh, but you know, politics can be crass sometimes. I mean, I, I are they looking at this right now and thinking, God, you know, this this means that these guys that are holding Ottawa hostage and everything else, they they've won uh, because we're doing this. But it's 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 coincidental, but at the same time, it's it's amazing just the the impact it's having on people's mindset. 
Well, I think you're right. It's a very difficult tightrope. Um, I mean, it's like asking about the emergencies uh, provisions that the prime minister has brought in. Yeah. You bring it in because we need it across the country or because you can't get it cleaned up in Ottawa. <laughs> I mean, you know, what, what is the motivation for this? I think you rightly pointed out the premier had a timetable. It was publicly out there. And, and Dr. Karen Moore said that we should be moving into that next phase if the healthcare system looked okay. Well, sure enough, it is. And what they've done is they've moved the timetable up a matter of days, which may in fact then say to a group of people, see, I told you so, we put pressure on the governments to change. Look, I think we're all looking to have some kind of solution to what's going on across the country right now when it comes to you know the protests and everything else. If it means a matter of four days and people having a Pyrrhic victory, I think Canadians are open to that. The reality, however, is that if you are intransigent and you are protesting, that's a different thing because you are going to stay at it until you get it everything done. And that's not where Canadians are at. 80% of them are not with the truckers on that side. So yeah, it's a difficult political minefield, but that's what politicians you know, get to do and make those decisions. And I think the premier and uh, Dr. Kieran Moore have, have read the room and that is a, a prudent step down, a gradual moving up of the timetable prudently um, based on what we've seen, but allowing certain mandates to remain in place and also allowing people to make their own choices. And I think that's what reflects right now in the polling. And by the way, I think that mindset to a certain extent, I think is, is a reflection on Dr. Moore too. He's a, uh, you know, he, he's not the guy that, that was in that position when this whole thing started a little more than two years ago. Uh, and his predecessor got a lot of heat for, well, some suggest not being strong enough and being, uh, you know, manipulated by the politicians. But uh, Dr. Moore presents this very bubbly, uh, effervescent personality. Uh, you know, he's a glass half full sort of a guy, uh, you know, put the rules and regulations in place. But uh, I, I think there's a public confidence in this guy that, that kind of makes us think, yeah, OK, if he says this is what we should do. We should do it. And I think he's what he's doing now is is, is easing us into this post-COVID uh, period to say it's OK. It's all right to do this. And I think that's assuaging a lot of people's concern. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, my Our daughter goes to Queen's University. She's in third year. And so I, I'm familiar with one thing, and that was he was the chief medical officer for yeah. uh, Frontenac. And he's pretty hard asked about it. I mean, he was, he locked down in that jurisdiction. Oh, he was, yeah, he was probably the most strident one. At the Absolutely. Across the province, he locked it down. So, I mean, it's a, it's, he's a doctor that doesn't, uh, you know, play the fool on any of this stuff. Look, I, I think the responsibility right now is, is for the doctors to give us the best advice possible. The public doesn't want them to be eradicated from the scene. They're looking for the red flag. And when it goes up, People were asking me this morning, there's a piece of research out of McMaster University that says we support mandates. Well, of course, what you're getting from that is, yes, I support mandates if they need to be put in place. Mine is a little different set of questions that people haven't been asking yet, and that is, as we move forward, what is the conditionality that you want to have in place? And you do see some unease here, but you're also seeing people say, the red flag for me is the healthcare system. You know, it's not the schools, it's not a bunch of, it's the healthcare system. And the only people who can make that judgment are the chief medical officers. So we want them to stay in the scene for a little bit more, but more important, the transparency, the government allows us to see when that impact is taking place. And if you want to mandate a community to go back and wearing masks every day, you know, fill your boots. But that's kind of where we are right now. It's a transition. It's not a full on press. 
Uh, always fascinating to, uh, to get the research here, and I, I love your visits here. That uh, other issue you mentioned about this Emergency Measures Act, I think it's uh, something you probably guys are, are going to be exploring in the next couple of yeah. days, and I look forward to that conversation too. Uh, and the timing of that's going to be rather remarkable. Well, John, thanks so much for this. Great spending some time with you again today. Well, Bill, your prescient will be out in the next 48 hours with some new research. I figured as much. Take care, John. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. John Wright, Executive Vice President, of course, of Maru Public Opinion, keeping an eye on the public mood on a number of key issues. And, uh, you know, we're feeling pretty good about this right now. But as John's uh, polling reflected, uh, we're not ready to just say, okay, fine, just, uh, you know, just throw open the curtain and... Uh, Devil may care. Uh, we're still a little nervous about this, and we'll be watching the data. And, of course, you'll be watching the public mood for us as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.